When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 5. This is Writing Excuses, Pros and Contracts. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Brandon. I'm Aaron. And we are going to be talking today about contracts. This will be, you know, the deepest dive we can do in the next 15 to 18 minutes about what does a publishing contract actually look like? What does it involve and what do you need to look out for? Yeah, uh, a lot of these things are just, um, it's interesting because on one hand, publishing contracts are fairly standard, right? There's a standardization to them. There's certain things that are in them. Uh, our industry has been a long, around longer than any of the other major entertainment industries. Um, and because of that, the contracts kind of uh, have been around a lot longer and they've been refined. But at the same time, things consistently get, uh, publishers try to slip things in consistently that they should not be putting into those contracts. And beyond that, um, there is some legalese to how a contract looks like that when I got my first one, I was glad that I had an agent to go through and explain it all to me. And so I thought we would take a week, an episode, and just talk about what some of these things are and what they look like and hopefully make them less intimidating to writers as they are hopefully getting given some of these contracts. So let's go ahead and start um, uh, with the things that are generally in a publishing contract. Um, uh, this is one thing I would say that, that um, the first thing is in America, unfortunately, contracts are usually for life of copyright for uh, novel contracts with big publishers. Um, I don't know how it works in short fiction. Mary Robinette, is this common? Is it going to be life of, uh, of copyright also? Um, like, I would assume it has to be so they can keep the magazine in print forever. Well, so the interesting, one of the interesting things is that they'll get uh, the, the right for, for the first printing, but yes. then it's usually specified very clearly in the contract that they get to print it in that one magazine, and that is the only place that they get to use it. And if they want to do an anthology, they have to come back to you. Yeah. Uh, which allows you to sell reprints. You do not get yeah. to sell reprints with novels. You don't. Um, 
And this is this was a this was something that was fine in previous eras because novels went out of print when it became too expensive to warehouse copies and sell a few enough copies. So if your sales declined, you got the book back, you could then sell it again and hopefully get a relaunch and things like that. Modern contracts, because of the way e-publishing works, a lot of books just never go out of print um, by those old things. And so it is a big kind of source of contention with a lot of the indie published people um, that they don't like the idea that it's life of, uh, of copyright. And I think that's a valid argument to be making, but it is standard in the industry. It's not standard in, for instance, uh, the UK. All of my contracts in um, around the world get renewed uh, very commonly as they run out after a certain amount of time. This happens in Germany. We just renewed with, uh, with one of the publishers there. And it happens often in audiobooks. So my audiobooks in America just came up and we had a chance to renew the contract or not. Um, and so the only really big place that I have life of copyright is the main place and the main contract I do, which is with New York. Uh, but that is not a thing that you see and should raise red flags and that you're getting taken advantage of, or rather we're all getting taken advantage of. And perhaps as authors, we should try to be stamping this out, but it is a common thing in contracts. Yeah. Uh, the next thing that's going to be in there is it's going I, to oh, go ahead, Mary Robinette. Oh, uh, just uh, life of copyright. One, one thing that I wanted to mention with that, if is that there is something called a reversion clause and a reversion clause is that if your publisher doesn't meet certain conditions, um, the, the th threshold of sales, uh, payments, uh, there, there's a number of different things um, that the rights will revert back to you. And it's very important to make sure that your contract has a reversion clause so that there is a mechanism by which you can reclaim those rights. As I said before, this is harder to have happen than it used to be. Um, and maybe what you should be doing is raising those thresholds of sales that they need to meet. Um, some of my early contracts, which are still in force, right? Uh, because I signed them before the ebook revolution happened, but they knew enough to get ebooks in there. And so they are for ebooks. Um, say, you know, we have to sell like 50 copies or something like that, um, which is just, they can put it on sale on Amazon for 99 cents. And even if you're not a big author, they can sell that threshold. The old thresholds no longer are really, uh, they really don't work anymore. And But a lot of the contracts still have the old threshold. Um, and so watching what your reversion language is and trying to get better reversion language is well worth your time. I got books back from Scholastic after um, we weren't pleased with how they were going there. But unfortunately, because of this language, there was no chance they would ever revert um, because my name is big enough that sales would trickle in and they would get those 50 or 100 copies per pay period. Um, and so I had to write a big fat check to just buy them back to get them back, um, which is something you can also do. Yeah. And that's what I had to do with audio rights for Active Memory, the third book in my cyberpunk series. Harper had the audio rights, but chose not to bring the third one to audio. Um, and so I eventually, after several years of arguing with them, just bought the rights back. I haven't had a chance to do anything with them yet, uh, but I did not have a good reversion clause and they were able to sit on them for several years doing nothing. Yeah, in short fiction, you're going to be looking, the the some of the language that you're looking for is making sure that um, it doesn't ask for perpetual irrevocable rights. Um, because 
if, and we've seen this happen before, unfortunately, in short fiction, uh, if the market does something and you no longer want to be associated with that market, you may want to be able to, to pull your story from it. And so you want to make sure that your contract has a good way to to get out. Yeah. Or if the market goes on hiatus, you know, sometimes the market goes on hiatus and, you know, doesn't seem to ever be coming out and it's, it's good to have something in your back pocket. I think one of the things to be aware of with short fiction is that it can feel like you've already written the story and like the contract usually comes to you after they're like, we are going to take your story. Here's the contract. And so it can feel like, you know, it's a done deal. Like there's no way anything could go wrong, but there's always a chance Murphy's Law. So it's always good to have a plan in the contract that maybe you don't end up needing, but you still have it if you do. So another one of these things that is uh, you really want to pay attention to is what we call ancillary rights. It's sometimes listed uh, in different ways in contracts, but you can find it by them. It, the contract should limit what rights the publisher is purchasing, meaning um for most cases, for book contract, you should be selling in America North American English rights and maybe North American Spanish rights um, are the extent and full extent of what you should be selling with the asterisks of some UK publishers that have US arms, have a strong UK um, uh, publishing arm. And in some cases, you may want to sell um, them your world English rights. Um, and that's like, for instance, Orbit in the U.S., um, it's very hard to not sell them world English because they're a U.K. company that has started up a U.S. arm in the last 15 years, and they are acquiring for both of those. The other big one that has the asterisks on it is audiobook rights. Audio rights are worth big money now. Um, they didn't used to be. When I broke into the business, audio rights, you would sell several dozen copies to, um, to libraries. Now, as I, as I spoke about, um, my audio rights are almost 50% of my business. And so um, publishers have certain mandates of now that audio has become such a big deal to not buy things without audio rights. And you're going to have um, a fight if you want to keep your audio rights. It still can be done, but it's getting harder and harder and harder. But they should absolutely not be taking our translation rights, any film rights, or any stage rights. And, they and there are some outlet. There are some outlets right now. Like I know, Serial Box insists on film rights as part of their thing. Oh, really? Oh, well. Yeah, I doing... just learned that a couple days ago. Actually, I was very surprised. Yeah, Aren't they, they doing they are... shared story things though on Serial Box a yeah. lot? Yeah, it's it's a shared world. So their yeah. their model is much. Uh, their, their contract model is is somewhat different than than standard. And and it is also because it is a shared world. There are things where you are unlikely to be able to sell sell those rights on your own anyway, because you're you know you're a, a chapter in a a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shared rights are a different thing, and and tie in things and things like that. Um, like when I signed a contract for uh, the Wheel of Time, I was not looking at most of these things that we're talking about right now because that was work yes. for hire. Um, and that's a, that's a completely different, uh, different ball game, but your publisher, if you sell traditionally is going to try in my experience to keep the film rights. And all this means to them is so where film rights for authors generally, in my experience, sell because somebody in Hollywood reads a book, decides it's hot and offers, uh, to buy it. 
I have very rarely been able to go to Hollywood and pitch something and sell it. You can. It does happen. But most of the time, they are coming to you. And so if your publisher keeps the film rights, all it is is free money for them. Because the film rights will be 50-50 split between you and the publisher. The publisher, the, the person will come to you and say, hey, we want to option this. And you'll be like, oh, publisher has the film rights. They will go to the publisher, give them the same deal they were going to offer you, and the publisher will send you half the money. Um, you should not sell anything that gives these rights to the publisher on an author-created property. Um, it, it's got to be one of your first, uh, your first lines you don't cross is that and translation rights. Uh, it used to be very common in YA for some of the big publishers, such as HarperCollins, to retain film rights and then market them aggressively. Um, mm. April Lynn Pike, for example, when Wings came out, she had sold film rights to Disney before the book even came out because Harper was doing such a great job of marketing those. I don't think that they still do that. I don't know exactly how that's changed over the last eight years. I will say that Joshua sold film rights on Alcatraz before the book came out, and I got all the money, and Scholastic didn't get any. So if you have a good agent, that's also um, mm-hmm. that also can happen. And oftentimes, an author will have their agent will have a relationship with an agent in Hollywood. Hollywood's a completely different world, um, but uh, a lot of times you can have an agent in Hollywood who is as aggressively marketing things as the publisher. But I will take that as a as a sign that, um, you know, rule number one is whatever Brandon or anybody tells you is going to have exceptions. It's only going to be the experience of that one author. Um, and in my experience, none of my publishers have done a good job of ever doing anything with any of their film rights that they've had from other authors I've known at those publishers. Yeah. Something that, that you mentioned that I, I just want to jump in on uh, because you said Hollywood is completely different. Um, it is important to understand that each area has their own terms of art. So when you are looking for someone to represent you, you want to make sure that you've got uh, someone like these. If you take a publishing contract and you show it to a contract lawyer in any other field, they will look at it like you are high. And why would you sign this thing? Yeah. But these are terms of art that are understood within the industry and if you and, and would be handled appropriately if anything came to litigation. Um, so, so you want to make sure that you are dealing with an entertainment lawyer. If you are having a lawyer look over your things, your agent should be familiar with these things and not worry, you know, so you you should be fine. But if, if you are uh, a belt and suspenders person who wants to have a lawyer look over it, make sure that they're an entertainment lawyer, um, is specifically make sure that there's someone who knows how to handle literature because that is different than film. Hey writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. 
and it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Awesome. Let's pause now for our book of the week, which uh, Mary Robinette, you're going to tell us about Middle Game. Middle Game by Seanan McGuire is this wicked, twisty tale. I want to tell you so little about it and also want you to read it so that we can shout at each other um, about it. I didn't know what the conceit was when I went in and when I figured it out, it was so cool. so it's, uh, it is again, it's about uh, family, it's about magic, uh, alchemy is real, um, and, and it's, it's really, really good and will keep you guessing. Um, I blew a deadline finishing this book. Fantastic. So, Middle Game by Sean and McGuire. Thank you very much. All right. Um, I wanted to ask Brandon uh, when you were talking about uh, ancillary rights. Are are you inclu- is this a good time to talk about international rights, or yeah. is that coming up? Nope that's uh, that's part of this discussion. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, we have talked about it on the podcast before. The way that uh, translation rights work for books, um, not sure as much on short stories, but for books is you will sell the rights separately in each country. And usually your agent will have a relationship with agents around the world. And uh, a sign that an agent is a good agent is that they will have these established relationships with other agencies in the local languages. And those agencies will take all the books that the U.S. agent acquires and then try to sell them locally to uh, to their markets. And this is really a great an important source of income for a lot of newer novelists who have just broken in. Um, I know that I lived on some of these foreign rights um, sales back when I couldn't make a living just off of my U.S. sales. And I know Dan had a similar experience that this can be the difference between going full-time and not going full-time is making some of this money. Um, And uh, a lot of the agencies consider it a mark of pride that they're able to do this and to sell rights around the world for their authors. 
Uh, it doesn't happen for everyone. One of the things you have to understand is if it's not happening for you, there are some times where certain genres just do not sell as well internationally as other genres do. Um, this is this is very common, for instance, in humor. Humor is so focused on it, – it's so much harder to sell a humor piece in another language because a lot of the humor just doesn't work and local countries have their own styles of humor. But – it is something you should try it. You should retain in your contracts regardless because you might as well have the shot at it of selling internationally. Yeah. yeah. And, and Go ahead, please. I was going to say in short fiction, uh, I think one of the big differences in short fiction and, and novels is that unless you have an agent anyway, because you write novels in addition, in short fiction, like you're a one person shop, you're your own agent published, you know, you're dealing with, you're reading your own contracts and they're a lot shorter and easier to to look at, though it is a good way to learn some of those terms of art because you have to look at everything yourself. But I will say that I've had short stories published in three or four languages. And actually what happens is as long as you retain the right to do it, usually in short fiction, people will come to you and say like, I read your story and like, I'm Italian and I want to translate it into Italian and give you a little bit of money. And I'm like, yeah, why not? <laughs> so as long as you have the rights, then you can say yes. So it's just something to check off and make sure that your, I think there's one or two magazines that do hold uh, other language rights, but most will allow you to work directly with somebody in another country or translate it to another language. And you can you can actually pitch your stories, uh, submit your stories to foreign language markets, um, which is a good way to, to start to build audience. There's a couple of different databases out there of uh, of, of markets, foreign language markets. Uh, one of the interesting things. Um, uh, Hello, colonialism is that when uh, when stories are going out of the U.S. into another market, um, they will take responsibility for translating it. Um, when stories are coming from another country into the U.S., the author has usually has to translate it. There's a couple of different markets in the U.S. that do translate. Uh, that is starting to shift, but for a very long time, uh, we were we were really export only. <laughs> Um, uh, I just wanted to uh, say that for me, because a ton, I would say a majority of my business is non-English, uh, mostly Germany and Latin America, but several others as well. And sometimes that does translate into significant money. I lived on Germany and in fact, in Germany for several years. Um, Latin America, on the other hand, while my books are huge there, I don't get a lot of money from there, but I still get, and this goes back to what Mary Robinette talks about with, uh, you know, shininess, um, the opportunity to travel to Peru or to Argentina or to Budapest or to any of these countries where my books are big, but there's not a lot of money is still worth it to me because th that is a cherished experience and I've got good friends and that shininess really comes into play there. Yeah. I just got uh, the Japanese translations of uh, the Calculating Stars, and it's in two volumes, and they're tiny and adorable, and I love oh, them man. so much and can't read them at all. Japanese books are the best in translation. They're so good. They're so good. And uh, here's just a little tidbit. Science fiction sells better in Japan than fantasy. And so um, keep an eye on your, uh, your selling to Japan if you have a science fiction book. Uh, science fiction Noted. by foreigners sells better than fantasy by foreigners. Let me let me state it that way. Yeah. 
Uh, there is one other major topic I want to get to. Um, we're going to kind of skip over royalties and advances. Uh, these are talked about quite a bit more. It's easier to find uh, things about them. And indeed, there are some standardizations there. Um, my royalties on my books changed very little between my first published books and my later published books um, because of some of these standardizations and things like that. Um, however, one area I really want to cover is um, uh, right of first refusal and non-competition clauses. Uh, a few years back, all the major publishers started inserting really egregious non-competition clauses into their contracts. I remember CIFWA raising a big storm about it before I got one. And I'm like, hey, this is what they were talking about. Um, this is something that as I talked to my agent, he said, they try to do this periodically. Um, a new boilerplate is made by the publisher that is what they're going to give to everybody. And then everybody throws a fit about it and gets the non-competition clauses pulled out of them. Um, and then they wait a few years and then they try it again. What they're trying to do here is to make it harder for an author to walk away from a publisher once that author has gotten very popular. And that author is then able to demand better terms by playing the field than they would be um, uh, when they're a new author just writing their first books. Um, and so they try very hard. This happens in our local market here in Utah. There are some regional presses that have had in the past some very egregious non-competition clauses because they're really worried about this. Um, and this is where the thing we talked about where the publisher is not your friend comes into play. Um, they will try to keep a hold of you and they will tell you publisher will tell you, we're family. We want to be in the business together. That's why we're putting these sorts of things in there when it's just going to limit your options later on. And um, so you want to watch. It is all right to have a right of first refusal clause. It's very common, but you want it to be as narrow as possible. Um, they will start with a, we have right of first refusal on your next work, whatever it is. Um, you may be an academic writer who also publishes, and that right of first refusal technically means that your fiction publisher gets to see your next, next dissertation piece on um, something. You should limit that right of next uh, first refusal on if you can get it down to the next book in the series you're writing. That is the ideal place for it to be for you as an author. Um, often, you can only get it down to your next work in the same medium, meaning your next book for adults um, or your next epic fantasy book or something like that. Yeah, I think mine is something like, uh, or with one of the things that I remember with uh, the, the Glamorous Histories was that it was the next work of adult historical fantasy. Um, so I could do other fantasy, not historical. That's for someone a, else, I mean. That's a that's a that's a that's a, an example of a really good clause. Um, that's an agent yeah. who who got a good clause put in there to explain right of first refusal. This means that you have to show the book to your current publisher first, um, and basically they get the first crack at making an offer and things like that. Um, it doesn't mean you eventually have to take that offer. You can then go play uh, the field and take it to other publishers and things like that. Um, I'm not sure how the litigation plays out. I've been told sometimes that if you take a really bad deal from another publisher and the, your publisher has offered a much better deal, that that could get you into tricky legal situation. That's a question for an agent. 
Um, not for me. Um, but it, it, the reason right of first refusal is all right in this case is because if something is going really poorly, your publisher, then you still have that option to go somewhere else with the rest of the series. Um, the ones you really want to watch out for are clauses that let the publisher own the series rights. Uh, you should never sign this unless it's a work for hire or a series pitched by the publisher. Um, because then, you know, you could have a big falling out, walk away, and they own your characters. And you'd say, wow, no, that clause would never be in a contract. I have seen that clause in multiple contracts yeah. um, sent to authors. Never to me, but I have seen that clause before. Yeah. Can I can I say one other clause that I, I want to encourage people to make sure is in their contract? Um, and it's it's something that shouldn't need to be in there. And that's uh, a clause that says that the contract is binding binding on the successors, assigns and heirs, mm. um, or at least successors and assigns. What this means is that um, if a giant publishing house gobbles up another publishing house, that all of the terms of your contract are still binding on the new publishing house. That they don't get to, uh, they don't get to mess around. They still have to owe you all of the things that that you you were originally owed. Um, they're still obligated to pay you. This it's sounds very like, uh, something related to a current uh, uh, thing in the news right now regarding. Yeah, you. yeah. As we are recording this, uh, we're in the middle of something called Disney Must Pay. We're uh, we are talking to Disney about Alan Dean Foster. Um, uh, but it's not just Disney. There's uh, we're seeing this kind of thing happen uh, in comics and a, a lot and and other places. Um, so in in U.S. copyright law, um, unless there is something in the the deal memo between the two companies that buy each other, or you know one of them buys the other, that says. Uh, company A, you are still responsible for all of the obligations. We are just, in fact, buying the rights, but you're going to take care of all the obligations. Unless that language is in there, the way copyright law in the U.S. is understood is that if you take on a contract, you you also take on all of the obligations for that. Um, that said, it is what lawyers do is they take words and they make them mean the opposite of what they look like they mean. So having the uh, successors and assigns in there is really a belt and suspenders kind of thing, but it makes it unequivocal. The other thing that it does is that it protects your heirs as well. So that uh, when you pass, that it makes it very clear that these rights go to your heirs. Um, and that's uh, rather than leaving your book in in limbo. Um, the last little topic on this is the non-compete clauses. Um, Mary Avanette, have you seen these uh, during your tenure at SIFWA pop up and things where these are language where the publisher will say, the author won't write a competing work for another publisher while this contract is still in force, things like that. We we do see that. And like I've seen them attempt to do it in my own contracts. The um, Again, the the way it's the way we suggest approaching it is uh, first of all get it struck, but if you can't, at least get it defined narrowly about what a competing work looks like. Yeah, um, it showed up in my contracts, and we did get it struck, but only after it was like the fourth round of complaining about it that they took it out. Um, these yeah. sorts of things, uh, non compete is all very vague, uh, as I understand it. Uh, like, there's lots of 
vague is perhaps the wrong term. There is a lot of baggage to non-compete in uh, various legal terms and things. And I am not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. But um, I would say be very careful about these clauses, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have been burned by a non-compete in the past uh, where I had to give up like an agreed upon YA contract because I learned that uh, one of my other YA contracts included a non-compete and I had to walk away from a deal, which was really painful. Um, One thing, you know, as you're thinking about this and you're thinking, well, you know, if they if the publisher is really just trying to, you know, earn my loyalty and keep me in house, just tell yourself they're asking you to accept these contractual obligations to not work with another publisher. They would absolutely refuse any contractual obligation that prevented them from working with a different author. Um, so, you know, if, if it doesn't go both ways, it's it's not really fair. Anyway, we need to wrap up. So uh, this this has been really valuable, though, and I'm glad that we gave it the time that it needs because uh, aspiring authors need to know this stuff, um, you, especially if it's the first contract you've ever seen. So anyway, uh, let's get some homework from Brandon. Right. And I'm going to let Mary Robinette jump in, too, because uh, SIFWA has some model contracts that you can look through, kind of familiar yourself with, familiarize yourself with some of these terms and also to see what a good contract should look like. And so your homework is going to go to find these. Um, now, Mary Robinette, you said that there, we know that there is a pretty new one focusing on um, model magazine contracts, and we'll have that in the liner notes. Some of their con- their novel ones are a little older, isn't that correct? That's right. The, um, you can find the archive samples on the CIFWA site, some of which are from uh, 1989, and include things about microfiche and whether or not you need to print out your manuscript. Uh, they are extremely old model contracts and are interesting as historical curiosities. The magazine contract um, is up to date, but more specifically, CIFWA also has a contracts committee which looks at contracts and evaluates them for. Uh, for good practice. Um, so if you are a CIFWA member, um, that's something that that you can absolutely take advantage of. Uh, the other thing, I'm going to plug my own Patreon. Um, I got permission to uh, to step through one of my contracts all the way through, uh, clause by clause, uh, for my Patreon supporters, and that is recorded up there. I can't share it with the general internets, um, but I did get permission to do it for my Patreon supporters. So if you want to see a contract and have someone walk you through all the way through a 38-page novel contract, um, I, I have one that I can walk you through or that I did walk you through. Great. That is a really cool resource. Uh, I, I need to support you on Patreon, it sounds like. <laughs> anyway, there's, this has there, been There's a certain amount of me going, I don't know what that clause is. <laughs> You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.